-hmm. Infrastructure is critical to everything. They have to build more data centers and the supply chain that enables the building of those data centers and the management of those data centers is going to be critical. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making AI approachable and actionable. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder and CEO of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host and Marketing AI Institute Chief Content Officer, Mike Kaput, as we break down all the AI news that matters and give you insights and perspectives that you can use to advance your company and your career. Join us as we accelerate AI literacy for all. Welcome to episode 85 of the Artificial Intelligence Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Paul. We have, I, like, I think you and I were saying before we got on this, it was like not a crazy week, not like last week where just like everything was happening at once. But as we were preparing for the show, it was like, wow, there's some like really sneaky big topics this week that have some really big implications. So We've got some good stuff today. I, I'm actually like, I was going through, kind of looking through the notes, prepping for this one. These are some topics I'm I'm really excited to talk about. And maybe, I think there might be some, I'm trying to be real, like cautious about infusing too many of my own opinions and personal beliefs into things today, but there's definitely a few where we have to kind of get into some perspective on a few big issues. So we're going to get into that. Um, today's episode is brought to us by the Marketing Institute's AI for Writers Summit, which is uh, presented by Jasper. That is next week. It is March 6th, Wednesday, March 6th. It is a half-day virtual event, so it's going to be from noon to 5 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, following the tremendous success of our inaugural AI for Writers Summit in March 2023, which drew more than 4,000 writers, editors, and content marketers, we're excited to present the second edition of the event featuring expanded topics and even more valuable insights. You can check out the agenda. Get uh, There's a free ticket option. So you can check all that out at AIWritersummit.com. That's AIWritersummit.com. And as a big thank you to our presenting sponsor, Jasper, we wanted to take a minute and give you a little bit more information about Jasper and what their platform can do. So Jasper is an AI co-pilot for enterprises that uses AI to generate on-brand content that reflects your brand style and voice. Jasper can do everything from write blog posts for you to repurpose or rewrite content. And it sounds like you because it can securely store information about your company and products that also cuts down on hallucinations where the large language model just makes its stuff up. Jasper can even make suggestions on how to improve content performance based on trends in your content data. If you're looking to augment your marketing and content efforts with AI, Jasper is well worth exploring, especially if you're in an enterprise. To learn more, go to jasper.ai. All right, let's do it, Mike. Main topics. All right. All right, Paul. First up, NVIDIA, the dominant leader in AI chips, they have an estimated 80% market share. They just had another blockbuster earnings report. Their company stock jumped 16% last Thursday when earnings were released. And NVIDIA's market cap is now right around $2 trillion. In 2024 alone, the stock has risen 63%. Now, this is being powered by the need for GPUs or graphics processing units, which are the chips that power AI applications. As every company kind of becomes an AI company, NVIDIA expects demand for these chips to skyrocket over the coming years. So first up, Paul, I wanted to get your thoughts on this crazy successful earnings call and kind of what this might mean for knowledge workers and businesses who presumably can expect a huge boom in AI applications and power moving forward. So I, yeah, I had a couple of thoughts. I was watching closely. I, I I started investing in NVIDIA myself probably somewhere around like 2014 or 15 when it was around 60 some dollars a share. Um, and it, it, my personal feeling back then, so when we really started exploring AI deeply at a personal level, was that Wall Street just completely was missing the boat on AI and the companies that were positioned for once 
corporations started actually infusing AI and we started really scaling up the use of AI that they were just completely missing that Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, uh, Tesla to a degree, uh, Google, that they were all AI companies and they were being valued based on what they currently did, not what they were going to do and what they were going to mean to society. So I've been a huge investor in NVIDIA for a, a long time. Um, and so I was watching with kind of nervous energy leading up to the earnings call last week because when you go and look, so I have a, a probably, I don't know, maybe six to 10 analysts, financial analysts that I follow pretty closely, uh, mostly on Twitter, that I use as kind of a, a barometer for what I, I think might happen in the financial world. And they were split. So there was some analysts who were like, yeah, there's no way they're going to hit these insane markers that they're uh that, that wall street has put on them in terms of revenue and earnings um and and growth and then the other one's like no they're they're gonna do it they blow it away every every quarter they're gonna do it again and so you realize like these people have no idea like they're they have more access to information than obviously we do and it's just educated guesswork so there was some analysts who very confidently thought that you know you should take some some money off the table, sell some of that Nvidia stock before the earnings, and then that night after the earnings, like it was up at I think sixteen percent in after hours trading, like something crazy like that. So just to give some context to to Nvidia's stock, if you'd have put ten thousand into Nvidia back in two thousand and fourteen, that ten thousand dollars would be worth approximately one point seven million today. I unfortunately didn't have $10,000 to invest back in 2014, so I didn't personally turn 10000 into $1.7 million, but I started investing and then I just kept investing over time. NVIDIA, after this earnings breakthrough, is now the fourth largest company in the world, surpassing Google and Amazon, who are uh, six and five now, and, and NVIDIA is up at number four. So the thing that there was a couple of things that came out of this that I think are really relevant to all anyone who listens to this podcast, either because of your personal investing and you're trying to kind of figure out how to benefit from AI and which stocks are worth investing in to what's actually happening in AI. And, and what you can learn from the NVIDIA call and the transcript when you, you know, you read or listen to the, the transcript from Jensen is how they view the future. And the big thing to date is their growth has, has in many ways been driven by the need for their GPUs to train these models. So when we talk about inflection and Anthropic and OpenAI and Amazon and Google, uh, they're all training these large language models, which requires a massive amount of compute. Meta is another one we've talked about. So they need these GPUs to train. But the real growth in the future is what's called inference. It's once the training is done and you and I use the model, we, you know, we query ChatGPT or Anthropic or Gemini or whatever, that moment when it now goes and computes information to output something to us is called inference. So what they're looking at is saying, hey, in enterprises, we haven't even really hit the adoption curve yet. We've talked about this many times on the show. All this growth in these tech stocks have happened without wide-scale enterprise adoption. So once enterprises actually start using these generative AI tools into their daily workflows, there's a whole new level of growth that happens and a whole new level of need for these GPUs, for these processing units. And so the way Jensen has talked about it before is in these like four waves of AI. Um, and so Gene Munster, who's one of the people I follow, one of kind of the financial analysts, he's the managing partner at Deepwater Asset Management. So he's really active on Twitter. He, he shares great insights into these stocks and stuff. And so he had tweeted last week about how Jensen talks about these sort of four waves of AI. The first is sort of th this training, this infrastructure build out where we're training these models. And then you start to get into the inference level in like the second wave. And so he basically said, like, we're at like 25% into the first wave. The second wave is where enterprises really start using these generative applications, and that will specifically take off with AI agents. Now, we'll talk more about AI agents in a, a topic later on today. We've talked plenty about AI agents in recent episodes. But once these agents start getting integrated into the software we use, now we're talking about billions of agents being built. And that like the average marketer, the average business person may be using dozens of different AI agents every day to assist in tasks. 
That is a whole nother level of computing power. And that's where inference happens. That's where we're like constantly calling on these models to, to take actions and help us deliver outputs. So that's the second wave. We haven't hit that yet. We're at the very, very beginning of that wave, possibly. The third wave is heavy industry. This is where like manufacturing and other industries really start to figure out how to use it. And the fourth wave is sovereign AI, which is basically every government in the world infusing generative AI into every application. So again, when we think about where this goes, we are going, we're, we're just entering the growth phase of this technology. The AI is not widely adopted. We're in this really, like really within this first wave, maybe starting to play into the second wave with some enterprise adoption, but it's early. And when Jensen, you know, we talked about Sam potentially raising like Sam Altman five to seven trillion to build infrastructure. What mm -hmm. they're all looking at, whether it's Google, OpenAI, Anthropic, Amazon, they're basically looking out five to 10 years from now into a world where these AI agents are everywhere, that, that inference is happening all the time for every task that's happening within knowledge work. And they're saying, we don't have enough data centers for this. And so there's a massive movement to build more capacity, to build more data centers, to build more chips. And so infrastructure is critical. So again, when we go back to like, what should you be investing in personally? I'm not giving stock advice. I'm not telling you to invest in NVIDIA personally. Like, I'm just setting the stage for where this is all going to go. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure is critical to everything. They have to build more data centers and the supply chain that enables the building of those data centers and the management of those data centers is going to be critical. So Jensen said he thinks there needs to be 1 trillion in infrastructure build out in the next five years, which is double the current pace. So he doesn't buy in. He was asked, actually asked about Sam's five to seven trillion and he kind of laughed. And he's like, yeah, I, I don't know that we need that much because he feels like the AI is going to accelerate the efficiency of building and doing inference, like, you know, building these models and doing inference. So we don't necessarily need as much as that, but a trillion is a lot. And so that's kind of where we're looking. And so when I look out to the future, I'm thinking personally about investing or I'm thinking about like what's going to happen in business. You have to understand that they all believe AI agents are going to be key. Those agents are going to need a lot of computing power, which is going to need a lot more chips and a lot more data centers. And that's basically the next five to 10 years of business. Wow. There's some serious implications <laughs> to what we're talking about here. And one of them is kind of what you highlighted about AI agents and Paul, you had shared some post-earnings call thoughts on LinkedIn that were related to the impact of all this, of agents, of this infrastructure build out, of where we're going on agencies, value-added resellers, VARs, and knowledge workers. So can you share what caught your attention in some of the comments that Jensen, the CEO, had made in a post-earnings call and kind of what we should be thinking about to prepare for all these coming changes? Yeah, there, there was a tweet in particular uh, from, it was John Fort, who's uh, CNBC Overtime. And it's about a 14 minute clip overall, but there was about a 50 second clip that caught my attention. And so in this excerpt, Jensen says, the world's enterprise software platforms represent about a trillion dollars. These application oriented tools uh, and or application oriented tools oriented platforms and data oriented platforms are all going to be revolutionized with these AI agents that sit on top of it. And the way to think about this is very simple. Whereas these platforms used to be tools that experts would learn to use in the future, these tools companies will also offer AI agents that you can hire to help you use these tools or to help you reduce the barrier of using these tools. So. Again, if, if you're a new listener to the show and don't know my background and Mike's background, I owned and ran a marketing agency for 16 years. We were HubSpot's first value-added reseller partner in 2007. So I built my agency on the back of HubSpot and providing services to HubSpot customers that didn't want to use the platform themselves or didn't have the internal staffing to use the platform. So we just became experts in HubSpot. And we delivered services to companies that wanted to grow using their CRM system and our marketing and sales and customer service tools. So I, I looked at this quote and Mike worked with me there starting back, what, 2011, Mike, I think. So we, yeah, we spent yeah. like 10 years at that agency together. So um, 
So as soon as I heard this, I was like, wow, like that's going to transform ecosystems. And we've known this, like we've talked about this on the show, but to hear Jensen say it was like a whole nother level of like, okay, like this is actually happening now. They believe this to be true. And so I immediately started thinking about what's going to happen to these agencies and bars if they don't change fast. Like they need to really be thinking about what is the impact of having AI agents that can do stuff almost at no cost. I mean, like mm -hmm. realistically, the cost versus what it, what it would cost to traditionally hire humans to do this work is going to be next to zero. And so if all of the sudden I can go into HubSpot or Salesforce or Oracle or Intuit or whoever has built these VAR networks or agency ecosystems, and I can hire an agency or I can just turn on an AI agent, whether it's built natively within one of these platforms or a third party tool like Multion or Adept or, you know, HyperWrite, which we'll talk about, where someone else has built an agent that basically just sits on your browser and can do task work for anything you do on your browser, which would include these platforms. And so to me, the implications are massive. And, and I'm saying this specifically for agencies of ours, but step back and say, no, this is like all knowledge workers. Like anyone who works in these platforms, even on the brand side, you're using tools that an agent is going to be trained to use. And the way it will happen is you will literally just turn the agent on and it'll learn how to do what you do by watching you once. And so that's what is going to be enabled is like, it's, so let's say I go into HubSpot and I'm going to click, do my 21 clicks to send an email. I, it will learn from watching me click where I click, and then it will learn how to do that. And the next time I need to do that task, it will have learned it and I will just click a button and it'll go do that task. And so it's like, almost imagine going into your platform and say, I want to run a new report I, and I turn on the agent and say, okay, learn, maybe it's just a learn button. And it now watches everything I do on my browser. And it learns that task by watching, and then I finish training or whatever, and it's now done. It now knows how to do that task moving forward. So you're going to be able to do that. So if you're an agency or a VAR, one thing you may do is offer services to train these models. Like that's part of what your job might become, one of the services you might offer. So the, in the post, and we'll kind of put this in, what I would say is like, follow me on LinkedIn is a great way to kind of see these kind of things. And we'll put the link, in, the, the post um, link in there. So you can go check this out. But basically what I did is I took our human to machine scale of like levels of automation of knowledge work. And I shared that. And then I shared a bunch of features within the HubSpot platform. And I said, one way to kind of future proof your company or your career is go through the features of these platforms that you spent all this time in and try and take some educated guesses about which things the AI agents will do and which things will be left for the humans to do. And if, you, if you're confident that the AI agents are going to do the vast majority of the work that those features enable, don't be building services around that anymore. And, and like really start moving to the features and capabilities these platforms enable that are going to be very minimal AI assistance. Um, so I just, I, I think it's like a really important thing that people start to truly look at the impact AI is going to have. So we, what we call an AI impact assessment, that you start to look out and think about your own job description, the platforms that you use, the campaigns you run, the workflows you run, really start to consider 12 months from now, what does this start to look like? Because that is the only way to get out ahead of this stuff. Wow. So it sounds like if I'm hearing this right, so if I'm a business that would historically hire an agency or a professional to do something, and I now can start thinking about, well, can an agent overlaid HubSpot, laying over HubSpot simply help me do this instead? I mean, that's a simple but extremely disruptive idea. Very much. And, and the way I think about it is I don't realistically think it changes much in like 2024. I think more people will start to experiment with these agents, but as we've said on the podcast before, you're going to have to give up a pretty significant level of privacy. Um, and uh, you're going to have to have a lot of trust in the companies that you allow to see everything you do on your browser. So I don't think adoption, one, I don't think the tech is quite there yet. So we're not at the stage where literally tomorrow you're going to turn this stuff on and it's going to start doing this stuff. So we've got time. And this is what I'm saying. Like you, you have time right now to plan for this. If you're a company, if you are a value-added reseller or an agency that provides professional services, you have time mm -hmm. to figure this out, but that time is going to come 
really fast. So I think 2024, there's going to be some breakthroughs in the ability to build these agents. Actually, NVIDIA, we'll talk next week about this, but Jim Fan just announced like they just started a whole new research arm within NVIDIA that obviously has probably more funding than any research firm in the world to build agents. Like everybody's going to build these things. And so I think 2024 is going to see some breakthroughs and we're going to start to see very early adoption, almost kind of like maybe where we are with generative AI today, where you're starting to find those use cases and like adoption is going to move. I think 2025 might be where we are today with generative AI, with AI agents. Like by this time next year, you're going to have some leading corporations that are starting to infuse AI agents at a more regular level, maybe through like Microsoft Copilot or something. But probably by like 2026, 2027, the tech is now there. We've solved all the privacy concerns, and now you're going to see just a takeoff point. So I, I think that there is, again, there's time to plan for this, but this may be way more disruptive than generative AI on its own. And, and so as, as mind-boggling as generative AI is and that we're still trying to wrap our heads around this, when we have true AI agents two, three, four years from now, it, it like reinvents knowledge work. So another huge kind of development that's going to, I think, have some ripple effects in the world of AI is this AI startup that's going viral. And it's going viral in part because it's actually gunning for pieces of NVIDIA's business. This AI startup is called Grok. Now that's G-R-O-Q, not G-R-O-K, the name of Elon Musk's AI company. Now this Grok, Grok with a Q, the one we're talking about, actually apparently had this name far before Elon Musk's AI company. But when we're talking about Grok moving forward, it's this startup, not the one that Musk owns. So Grok with a Q is an AI tool that serves responses to chat queries insanely fast. And it does that thanks to customized chips and a really novel software design. So it started going viral recently after users compared its speed in benchmark tests and Grok just like crushed OpenAI's ChatGPT. And some estimates say it's even up to 13 times faster then ChatGPT is pretty insane. And what's notable about this is that the system is built with these custom-made AI chips called language processing units, LPUs. And these basically allow the company's tool, its chat interface, to serve results from popular language models like Mistral and Llama almost instantaneously. So Grok describes LPUs as, quote, a new type of end-to-end processing unit system that provides the fastest inference for computationally intensive applications with a sequential component to them, such as AI large applications, LLMs. Now, this is a big deal because if we're able to serve up answers almost instantaneously from LLM-based tools, this opens up tons of new use cases in AI for business. And it also just makes all sorts of use cases that previously were too slow to reach commercial production very commercially possible. Grok's system could also threaten NVIDIA's business if companies start demanding LPUs instead of GPUs, thanks to all these speed gains. Um, Grok also claims it can deliver performance for way cheaper than NVIDIA. Now, while this is Grok's kind of moment in the spotlight, this company has been around since like 2016. Its founder and CEO, Jonathan Ross, he helped invent the Tensor Processing Unit, the TPU at Google, which is that company's custom AI chip. So this is definitely a company and a technology and an approach to serving up LLM results that is definitely worth watching. So, Paul, I wanted to kind of get your opinion on what's going on with Grok. Like, have they really cracked the code here on some better way to run AI applications? Yeah, we'll talk um, about Matt Schumer in a little bit and his AI agent work. But Matt Schumer, our friend at Hyper, is actually the guy who set this all off. So he tweeted on February 18th. Um, let's see, he said, wild tech, you have to try. And then he put the GROQ.com. They're serving Mixtral, which is open source model, at nearly 500 tokens per second. Answers are pretty much instantaneous, opens up new use cases, and completely changes the UX possibilities of existing ones. 
So I went and tried it that night. I actually saw the tweet from Matt and I was like, oh my God, like it is insanely fast. So you get, again, you can go try it for yourself. Just go to the homepage. You don't have to put any information in, just put a search in and a prompt in and it, it instantly just generates something. It's wild. So I think the, the main thing here is you have to remember like why NVIDIA built GPUs. It wasn't originally for AI training and inference. They built GPUs for video games graphics processing units like so th that that was like the whole model so these gpus while they had while they learned around 2011 that they were um very very powerful at training models that wasn't what they were originally for so there's some complexity in the engineering there's some complexity in how they do what they do that these lpus just sort of cut out because now they're basically just building something specific for and it's funny to talk about grok as a startup it's company seven years old like eight years old they're starting 2016 so but it it sort of like emerged last week i'd never heard of it and we pay pretty close attention to this space it wasn't a company i was aware of um so i don't know my, my thought is uh I, I mean doesn't nvidia just buy them like if they're really yeah, a threat like doesn't somebody just, or just replicate what they're doing? Like, I don't know. So I, I think it's amazing innovation. Um, I think it's awesome that companies are doing this kind of thing, but I, I don't really worry. It's going to like directly impact NVIDIA's market share and dominance. And mm. even there was a wall street journal article where they said, um, the CEO, Jonathan Ross, uh, said the company's on track to deploy 42,000 chips this year and uh 1 million in 2025 but they're exploring increasing those totals to 220,000 this year and 1.5 million next year so for context nvidia uh in august of last year financial times reported that nvidia was tripling its production of its h100 which is a, its most modern gpu in 2024, the goal was produced uh, to produce 2 million in 2024. Um, so again, LPUs from Grok right now on track for 42,000 chips this year. GPUs from NVIDIA, 2 million this year. So it's not like all of a sudden they're going to show up and just like take market share. But I think it's very much like, you know, chat GPT or perplexity like we talk about where all of a sudden... It's just like this amazing phase of innovation being fueled by AI where no business seems safe. Like perplexity out of nowhere, all of a sudden just starts getting all this love as a uh, as an alternative to Google. You and I both like yeah. love perplexity now and use it all the time. Yeah. And so you see perplexity and open AI come up against Google and force them to take action. You have Grok all of a sudden is like people are like, hey, wait, is this threatened NVIDIA? And so I think like the main takeaway here for me is People have probably heard us talk about this idea of the future of all businesses, AI, are obsolete. And so I wrote this post last year that, that basically you have three options with your company, AI native, AI emergent, and obsolete. So AI native is you build a smarter version from the ground up. That sounds like kind of like what we're doing here with Grok, you know, G-R-O-K or Q Grok, not the other one. Um, perplexity, same deal. Like you come at the big players with a smarter, more affordable, faster approach, basically. And so that's the AI native model. The AI emergent is you got to figure out how to be innovative again and how to push product to market like Google's having to do now. Like they're being pushed hard to function in a way they're not comfortable with. So this is the innovator's dilemma, Clayton Christensen. Like it's really hard when you're a big established enterprise to move fast and break things and be willing to put products out that have maybe higher risk than your, you know, or liabilities than you're used to doing. So I think that the main takeaway for me is Every business in every industry faces the opportunity to disrupt and has the risk of being disrupted. And you pretty much have to live that way moving forward. I don't care what company you're in and what industry it is. You have to assume someone is going to build a smarter version of your company. Mm. And it's way better to be the one that does that yourself. Be the AI emergent company that figures this out and says, what's a smarter version of our business? Yeah, kind of like we were talking about in the previous topic with how Mars and agencies need to start planning, you almost have to assume, okay, even if Grok is not making all these chips tomorrow, or if NVIDIA is not buying them tomorrow, this technology exists. So you almost have to like plan, what does that actually mean when several years from now, it's everywhere, right? Same yep. as AI agents. And you really have to challenge yourself, it sounds like, to 
think using a blank piece of paper instead of your preconceived notion. Yeah, and I, I know you've read the Elon Musk biography with Walter yeah. Isaacson. I'm I'm almost done with it now. And regardless of what you think about Elon, one, that book makes it very clear why he does what he does. Like mm -hmm. his tweets and everything else makes way more sense once you read that book. But to all of the challenges of Elon and his personality and the way he approaches things, he is like the prototype of first principles thinking like everything he does um you're never gonna see an elon run company face an innovator's dilemma i don't think like they are at their core disrupting themselves every single day at a rate that's almost impossible to keep up with and you know i think there's probably some balance between the way they do that and the way he runs companies and maybe how the average business leader would run a company but I think there's something you can take from his algorithm for how he analyzes and builds companies, putting all this other stuff aside. Um, and I think that's, again, if you haven't read that book, I would suggest it because I, I think you'll understand what becoming an AI emergent company really means um, when, you, when you understand how he builds businesses. And again, I'm not endorsing the way he goes about doing it. But I think right. there's principles of it that you can take away and apply in maybe a more human-centered way. <laughs> this actually leads really nicely into our third topic because we're talking a little bit more about some new material and new thoughts around the true impact that AI is going to have on your work. And thanks to just some of the velocity of the AI advancements we've seen, especially in the past few weeks, this is a question that increasingly business leaders need to start answering fast. Um, for instance, you know, Google's release of Gemini 1.5. We now have a model that can handle 1 million tokens in its memory, which is about 70, 750,000 words. Google's working on systems that will reach 10 million tokens that they've at least publicly talked about that's 17,000 pages of content. These systems are getting much, much faster, like we saw with Grok and AI expert Ethan Mollick this past week really summed this up nicely. He said speed and memory are both vital, making AIs more usable and powerful in the real world. Imagine feeding AI hundreds of pages of instructions on how to do something and then having it quickly do exactly that. In one experiment, he fed Gemini recently, this past week, thousands of pages of his work and the tools summarized, understood, quoted from the work in literally less than a minute. He went on to say, the advent of massive context windows gives AI superhuman recall and new use cases. He noted that this single use case would have taken human researchers days to do on their own. Really, the point here is we're hitting almost this inflection point where these tools are really going to have this insane, profound effect on knowledge work as we know it. And Paul, this is kind of a opportunity and warning that you've been talking about since day one of Marketing AI Institute, that business leaders must understand this technology and what it's capable of as quickly as possible. Now on LinkedIn this past week, you actually gave a really cool example of how practically business leaders can start doing that. Could you walk us through that? Yeah. So first a quick note on the Gemini 1.5, you know, we talked about that. I think it was last week or the week before mm -hmm. when they announced it. Um, we're going to talk about some negative stuff with Google in a minute, but I, I want to say like the people I follow who have access to 1.5 are blown away mm -hmm. by it. Um, uh, so the early feedback, like Ethan Mollick, who has access to it as a researcher, is just, they say it's mind-blowing, basically, of what it's, what it's capable of. And it does already seem to be as powerful as their ultra model. Um, so just keep an eye on Gemini 1.5. I know their whole naming conventions are super confusing, honestly. Like, we need, like, a checklist ourselves to just, like, reference back what, what 1.5 is versus pro and ultra and we're I, I don't know it's like wild they're yeah <laughs> they're brand yeah. new stuff but anyway um yeah so the the linkedin post you're referencing on the true impact AI will have on your work it was one of those like I, I just got up saturday morning and i had like 10 other things i needed to do but it it sort of like took over my mind of it was kind of on the heels of the hubspot platform example the ai impact assessment where i was going through and saying look at the features like and what I realize is you and I, Mike, spend a ton of time, especially in our talks and the workshops we run, 
trying to make AI as approachable and actionable as possible. And so we, we constantly try and develop frameworks that make it really simple for people to understand the impact on themselves. And so in this case, I was trying to show like, listen, if, if you just take the thing you do all the time and just find ways to infuse AI, you're going to see success with it. And so I, I happened to be like, I was trying to think out like, what can I show as an example? And then I realized like, okay, I'm, I'm knee deep in planning our marketing AI conference agenda for September. And once we get through writer summit next week, I got to finalize getting all these speakers recruited and, and getting the agenda locked in. And so rather than going into Asana, which is where we keep all of our tasks and me actually like building the, the official task list, I was like, let me just do this really fast as a demonstration. And so I went into chat GPT and said, you're an event planner responsible for creating the event agenda, researching speakers and selecting speakers build a task list of all the activities involved. And then it like, it gave me a, a list pretty quickly, not as fast as if I had used an LPU, but it, it came out fast. Um, and it gave me phase, task, and details. And so I said, can you give me this in a CSV format for download? So it did, and I downloaded the CSV. And so then I took that CSV and I added a couple of columns, like estimated time to do the tasks, all human, estimated time if I used AI, estimated time saved with AI, and then like sample AI tools I would use and kind of how I would use them. So again, you can go to LinkedIn and you can download this thing yourself and see this. I think it's really helpful because I actually went to the notes column. I was like, hey, listen, I would use ChatGPT to do this. I would use perplexity for this. And so in total, there was 16 tasks related to the speaker um, you know, identification, recruitment, and processing about or 220 hours of work manually. If I did this all the traditional way, it would take me about 220 hours of work. So I went through and, and found uh, out of the 16 tasks, nine of them where I could infuse AI in some way, at some level. Um, those nine tasks would save me 42 hours or about 19% of the time. So this isn't even like this isn't an advanced use case where there's tons of it. There's a whole bunch of tasks here where you just got to do it. Like there was an example like writing personal thank yous at the end. I said, this isn't an AI thing. This has to be personal and it has to be human-based. Like this has yeah. to be you. So there was a bunch of stuff in here that really you can't shortcut with AI. And even in that environment, it was still saving almost 20% of the time. And so my point with this post, which is a pretty quick post, like I didn't go into a bunch of details. It was kind of like real quick thoughts. And then like, here's a sample worksheet you can use. My whole point was, if you want to find ways to apply AI, think about the projects, the tasks, the campaigns that you're already doing and just do something like I did where you go through and say, okay, which tools could I use at a task level to help me here? And my guess is you're going to unlock 20 to 40%. Like there's plenty of other things, Mike, you and I do where I could have easily seen a 40% savings in time mm -hmm. with AI. Again, this was, it's hard to take the time out. For example, when I'm recruiting speakers for the main stage, I, I watch year round for people and I keep a list, a sandbox of potential speakers. When I go to actually recruit them, I will sit there and watch an hour video of their presentation to see what kind of presenter they are, to get their point of view on things. You can't shortchange that. I can't ask AI to go watch it for me and tell me if I should you know, bring this person in. That agenda is the entire Maycon experience. Like if I bring in a crappy speaker, you don't have a great experience and you're not coming back. I cannot turn that over to AI. It might help me identify some people I don't know. It could help me assess maybe things they've written. But at the end of the day, I got to watch the video myself because it's on me whether or not they're a good speaker when I bring them in. So I just, yeah, I think like I, one of the ways we teach in our applied AI workshops is like job description, Mike, where we'll have them go through and like, what do you do? What are the 20 responsibilities? And I think this is just kind of a continuation. It's like another way to look at it. Take the campaigns you run, the projects you're doing, and just find ways to infuse AI within these. And sort of complementary to this, I liked a lot when Ethan Mollick was talking about this subject, he had these four questions that he recommended that companies ask themselves in the face of all this rapidly advancing AI. But also I think these are really good questions to ask as an individual in your career as well. And very quickly, they are, what useful thing do you do that is no longer valuable? What impossible thing can you do now? What can you move to a wider market or democratize? What can you move up market or personalize? So I think you do, in addition to 
reviewing the really in the weeds, practical tasks, campaigns, responsibilities you have every day, it also requires a mindset shift that simply some of the stuff you do, you simply do not need to do the way you've always done it. And there may be better uses of your time than what historically you have been tasked with in your role or in your company or in your market. So I'm curious, Paul, like, did you, what were your thoughts kind of on these questions? Anything you'd add to this? No, it kind of reminded me of the post I wrote the day that I saw Dolly 2. So when Dolly 2 came out in 2022, I wrote something um, where I basically was trying to grapple myself with the impact it was going to have on knowledge, work, and creatives. So my wife, again, if people don't listen to the show before, my wife is an artist. Uh, my daughter at 12 wants to be an artist. My son wants to be a video game developer at 10. Um, I'm a writer by trade, came out of journalism school. And so when I saw Dolly, I realized everything was changing, that, that AI was going to be creative. It was going to be able to think and understand and reason all the things we'd thought was going to happen were happening. And so the post I wrote was trying to understand this and trying to help other creatives understand it. And so what I wrote at the time was you have to come to grips with what will be lost, what will be gained and when. And the what will be lost is like, what is the AI going to do that I thought I was uniquely capable of doing? What is the thing that kind of defines me as a person, as a professional, that at some point I have to accept AI is now able to do? And that's a hard, that's the hard part. The, the positive perspective is, but what am I now able to do I couldn't do before? How do I become a better artist? How do I, you know, enhance my creativity? How do we become more innovative? And then when is it going to happen to me based on this trajectory of AI capabilities? And so it fits really well with this AI agent conversation, because I think there's going to be a lot of things in the next couple of years that as knowledge workers and creative professionals, we have to come to grips with AI is probably going to be better than us, or at least at human level, um, expert human level in a lot of things that we currently think only humans are capable of doing. And that's... Again, it's not like you and I aren't here cheering on AI agents saying, oh, I can't wait till they just take all, all the knowledge work right. from us. We're realists of like, I don't see how this isn't the outcome, but we have time now to think about this. And so the and when part is AI agents are coming. When might be 12 months from now for some of you, it might be three to five years from now for others. It's just a matter of time though. And so I think like kind of like Ethan Malik is saying, you got to kind of look at what are we going to be good at still? What is the thing we're going to be capable of? And let's start preparing for that moment. All right, let's dive into our rapid fire topics this week. First up, the social media site Reddit is going public and its IPO filing reveals that it actually has some data sharing arrangements with companies specifically AI companies, where it is licensing Reddit data to train their model. Reddit says that these deals are worth more than $200 million in total. They did not reveal, however, which AI companies are licensing data from its platform. Bloomberg has reported that a single, quote, large unnamed AI company had entered into a $60 million per year licensing deal. Now, all we can do is speculate here, but it is also worth noting that OpenAI CEO Sam Altman has 8.7% stake in Reddit, which makes him the third largest shareholder of the company. So why is this such a big deal that AI companies are apparently licensing data from Reddit? Well, we've kind of known this. This is, um, I thought it was, isn't it Google that had the licensing deal with them? Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, Bloomberg revealed it or okay. I think they had said it was like an unnamed. Okay, company. I thought I saw another they, source they that said it was Google, it. which I thought was odd given yeah. Sam's stake in Open uh, in, right, in Reddit. Right. But uh, we'll 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 check that and put it in the show notes if we have it. But it is it is one of them. I, I thought I, I saw that it was actually Google. Um, regardless, it was interesting to see Sam's massive stake in this that is going to be worth a lot of money um we've talked about this before the future of these models is going to be licensed and synthetic data like they there's these ongoing debates whether or not they were legally allowed to take all the copyrighted material they had so we've known that all these proprietary data sets are going to be worth a lot of money to properly train these models 
And so GPT-5 and beyond, but Gemini Ultra 2 and beyond, like they're all going to use synthetic data so that the AI generates and they're going to use licensed data. It's going to be probably the primary training sets. It's why uh, Elon Musk turned off access to Twitter's feed so that mm -hmm. only XAI, his AI company and Grok with a K, um, has access to Twitter because they think that that's what will make Grok unique and different than everybody else is it's the most real time data that represents everything happening in the world. And so when you combine that with Tesla and its worldview, you now have like this amazing potential model. So it's not surprising at all that Google or whoever has this major licensing deal with them. Um, they're all going to probably do it. That's how they're going to make money in the future. And so I think you know, this impacts media companies, it impacts online sites that have the proprietary data, it impacts your company if you have a bunch of proprietary data. Uh, mm -hmm. Licensing of data is going to be huge moving forward. All right. So related to some of the things we've already been talking about, we just got even more proof of AI agents starting to come out into the wild. You know, our friend Matt Schumer, who we talked about before at the AI company HyperWrite, announced that their Agent Studio product would be shipping this week. So Agent Studio allows you to simply show an AI how to do a repetitive task online in your browser, and then it will go do it for you every time after. Now, this is just one example of the AI agents that we're seeing in the world. I mean, there are now multiple ways to train AI agents to do things for you. There was another really interesting example from a user on X named Paige Bailey. Paige recorded a screen capture of looking for an apartment on Zillow. And then Google Gemini was then able to generate Selenium code, which is a type of code that allows users to automate browser actions. And it was able to help the AI go ahead and perform the task. Uh, the result was an application that opened Chrome, navigated to Zillow, typed in Cupertino, California in the search bar, Click down for rent, set the price range up to $3,000 a month and set the bedrooms to two or more, then clicked on the apply button. So we've talked a lot about AI agents this year so far, including in our main topics. I mean, Paul, is it time for business leaders to start experimenting with things like Agent Studio once it comes out this week? Uh If you have like research arm that's closely guarded on usage, probably like you mm. definitely experiment with the technology. I, I wouldn't, again, because you're going to give up visibility to everything you do on the browser. Uh, this is probably like a limited rollout where you're, you're, you're kind of in testing mode. Um, Paige actually works for Google DeepMind and she put mind officially blown and she works <laughs> with this technology. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like when I saw that tweet, my initial reaction was, is this an emergent capability? Like, did they not, know it was able to do this like to basically build an agent which wasn't something we thought it did or is this like a hidden feature within gemini that they're going to on unleash and i actually don't know the answer but the fact that it can do it is kind of wild um and it shows you how prevalent these things are probably going to be when you got to assume ChatGPT is going to have these same capabilities and now whether you're using the AI agent studio or you're using Adept or Multion or whatever it's going to be, there's going to be uh, an explosion of AI agent capabilities. And again, I think this year is going to be early. Testing is good. Start to see what they're you know able to do if you're willing to give up the privacy side. Um, but it, it's... It just seems like I don't think we've had our chat GPT moment yet. And I, I think yeah. that's what I'm going to wait to see is do we have a chat GPT like moment in 2024 where AI agents start to go mainstream where, you know, you have um, like with chat GPT a month after it had yet 100 million users. Like, are we going to have that kind of moment? And is it going to come from like a hyper right kind of a, a true startup within the space or is Google or OpenAI or somebody going to turn on an AI agent capability, Microsoft, where all of a sudden it just becomes everyone's like experimenting these things and seeing what's possible and setting up workflows for their email campaigns and all that stuff. I, I don't know that that'll happen this year, but it's certainly a possibility. So Google actually ran into a little trouble recently with Gemini. It recently disabled a feature in Gemini that generated images of people. And it did that because the results were 
becoming wildly inaccurate in certain cases and sometimes offensive to certain people. Um, the controversy centered around some users attempting to generate images of historical figures, and that included Gemini ending up generating images that were not exactly historically accurate. They were presenting images like racially diverse Nazis and the U.S. founding fathers in a number of different races. Now, this was after people had been asking for kind of historical figures as they were in history, not kind of with Google adding its own spin on things. So Google apologized that the image generation wasn't working as well as it should. And it said it built Gemini with guardrails to make sure that it doesn't generate, you know, violent or explicit images. And because the company's users come from around the world, it also built it to make sure that you get a range of different ethnicities or other characteristics when you type in an image generation prompt. So what they say what happened here is these kind of guardrails that were intended for really positive outcomes. The tuning of them failed to account for cases where images definitely should not show a range of people. You should not be generating a very diverse crowd of, say, Nazis. And over time, this model ended up becoming really cautious, much more so than Google intended, and even refused to answer certain prompts entirely. So this whole thing has people online in certain camps claiming that the model was politically or culturally biased. It's become this major social flashpoint. Google is claiming that it's really just some of the engineering having some unintended consequences. So, Paul, this rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, what's going on here? Like, how seriously should we take the fact that this might be biased politically, socially, culturally? Um, Google's explanation. Can you kind of unpack this for us? If you're new to how these models are trained and how they work, this may seem kind of shocking to you. Uh, this is widely known to be a major challenge with these models. This is, this is how this works. Now, the problem is if you live in the Twitter echo chamber, it did become very political and it's increasingly by the minute becoming more political because Elon Musk and his allies are using this as basically a, a flashpoint to try and like go at Google and try and make the case that Grok won't have these problems because Grok is going to be truth seeking. And mm -hmm. it's just like, it's maddening. I mean, per personally for me, I can't stand this stuff. Like Everybody has to make everything political, even if it's not. So Google admits, and you can in the show notes, you can go read the the blog post where they explain what happened. So they admit they screwed up. But the question becomes whether or not their culture will actually enable them to fix it. So if you're in the Elon camp and and his allies, they're basically going to be of the opinion of there's a bunch of people within Google who did this on purpose. And they don't want to fix this. This is mm. unless they clear house at Google and put a new CEO in place who like forces change to their culture. This is basically what you're going to get. It was not an accident. It was a design choice made by humans who now need to be fired. That is the Elon slash EAC opinion of what is going on right now. Mm they don't bother addressing the fact like everybody has had these issues, open AI, stability, everybody, anybody who releases a model has to deal with the same problems, which is these things are trained on data available on the internet. And if you go search for anything on Google or any search engine, it's going to largely come back with kind of biased data. So if you say, show me pictures of a doctor or show me a picture of a lawyer, or, show me a picture of a CEO, you're going to generally get white males. Like it's yeah. just what the internet produces. And so these models are kind of trained on what will come back from search results in, in many ways. And so what they do is they go in and they kind of try and fine tune these things. So they're more diverse that they create, which is a, a logical thing to do. Now in Google's case though, what they're saying is like, we, we, we went overboard. Like that, that we're trying to show so much diversity that when you ask for a picture of the Pope, you should get a picture of the Pope. You shouldn't get a diverse representation of what the Pope should be in the future. Mm. And that's basically what they're doing is they're trying to show this diversity. So 
unless you put out a model and and just put it in the wild and let it do everything it's capable of, like make everything. It can be racist issues, sexually explicit issues. It can be all these things. That's the open source models. Let's just put this thing out there and let people get whatever they want out of the thing. Unless you put the guardrails in place, that's what's going to happen. So the people that are doing this could have zero political motivations. They may just be trying to do what is ethical, moral, aligned with reasonable human values, but everybody's going to turn into a political thing, either because they can gain points for their own AI system or because they actually believe that it's a political thing and there's some conspiracy going on here. This is why it drives me nuts. Is like we can't just get to a solution, but the problem is there there isn't really one. That the the challenging thing is if you go and do like I saw one about um like how to butcher a cow, like how, basically how to make steak. Gemini won't tell you how to do it. Like it, it won't give you the images. It won't give you videos. It'll basically say you sh like shouldn't cut up a cow in essence. Mm. But you could go do the exact same search in Google and get a bunch of YouTube videos, how to's, like all this stuff. You can go do it on YouTube and you can get a bunch of videos showing you how to do it. So it's, it's really weird that Google as a company allows all this stuff in search and YouTube, but yet their own model doesn't seem to do it. So my feeling is because the way these models are trained and the way they work, this is a very challenging technical issue and it's a challenging societal issue, but it becomes really important because the more people rely on these models for their information, they most, the more they go to like a perplexity or a chat GPT instead of a search or instead of YouTube directly, yeah. we're going to start having a generation that learns what is true and what is not based on what these models output. So the problem is there's no quick fix. And I think what's going to happen, and we've seen like OpenAI, again, when they got lambasted when they first came out and it was claimed it was too far to the left. So they pushed it to the right and then it, you know, they couldn't get to the middle politically. What Sam said is, listen, we're going to make this thing where you can just make it whatever you want it to be. So I think what's going to happen is you're going to basically have like temperature settings on your models in the future, on your open AI chat GPT or your Gemini. That's like, give me the explicit stuff. Like, I don't care. Just give me like whatever this model is capable of, or like, no, let's tune this thing to be politically this way or that way, or like 13 and under, or like whatever. I think that's the only way to solve this is to let individuals choose what sort of experience they want through settings. Otherwise, we're going to keep having these arguments all the time. So in another example of AI gone a bit wrong, uh, Air Canada, the airline, was forced to give a partial refund to a passenger thanks to a pretty serious AI mistake. So a customer named Jake Moffat, he went to Air Canada's website to book a flight. Unfortunately, on the day his grandma died, he wasn't sure what policies the airline had around bereavement rates, which are these flexible rates. They are sometimes offered by airlines to people who are in need. So Jake did what many of us would do. He asked the company's chatbot. Unfortunately, the chatbot provided inaccurate information about the company's policies. He had encouraged him to book a flight and then due to the policy request a refund after booking the flight. This turns out to go against the company's actual guidelines. Moffat didn't know that. So after he books his flight, his request for a refund is denied. And Air Canada furthermore refuses to admit fault and budge on the refund. The company actually said that because the chatbot response linked to a page with the actual policy, Moffat should have known he couldn't request a refund. Moffat was unsatisfied with that and challenged the ruling in Canada's version of small claims court. And he mostly won receiving a partial refund. But what's really interesting and wild here is Air Canada's argument in court against this. According to Ars Technica, the company essentially argued that Moffat should never have trusted the chatbot and that it's not liable for the chatbot's misleading information because the chatbot is, quote, a separate legal entity that is responsible for its own actions. Now, Paul, this is just one kind of crazy story about AI gone wrong, and I'm no lawyer, so maybe this legal argument from Air Canada is less than a watertight here. But 
as a business leader, like, what should we be thinking about here? I mean, should we not be using chatbots on our website? Yeah. So just for context, this happened in November, 2022 before ChatGPT came out. So it wasn't like ChatGPT gone wrong per se, like current model. But I, I do think that the overall like lesson here is there are instances where generative AI is phenomenal and you should be racing to infuse it into your workflows. And there's instances where humans have to remain in the loop. And if you run the risk of liability, we saw one not too long ago with like a car dealership, I think, where they sold a car to somebody yeah. for like $200 instead of yeah. 60000 There's enough stories out there to know that relying on a chat bot to give factual information um, isn't probably there yet. We haven't eliminated the hallucinations and people can mess with these things. Like he didn't do it intentionally, but you can get them to give you things uh, right, by just kind of right. working with them. So I think it's buyer beware, like just be cautious of the use cases you are applying AI to. And I don't know that we're quite there yet where generative AI replaces uh, the need for a human to be in the loop on customer service related items. So this past week, we also saw a couple new initiatives to combat the growing problem of deepfakes. So first up, some leading technology companies signed an accord to combat the deceptive use of AI in 2024 elections worldwide. This is called the Tech Accord to Combat Deceptive Use of AI in 2024 Elections. And it's a set of commitments to deploy technology that counters AI-generated content meant to deceive voters. This has been signed by companies like Adobe, Amazon, Google, IBM, OpenAI, TikTok, and more. And as part of the accord, these companies are pledging to work together on tools to detect and address deepfakes and then drive education around them. Now, at the same time, over 300 tech and AI experts have released an open have released an open letter urging immediate government action to combat the rising threat of deepfakes. So some of the notable people that signed this include the former U.S. presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, Stuart Russell, who's a big AI voice and expert in the space, and Francis Haugen, who is a prominent meta Facebook whistleblower. Um, this letter supports all the legislative efforts to target what they're calling the deepfake supply chain. And it makes some recommendations on how to start combating the problem of deepfakes. So, Paul, we talked at length about how important it is to combat deepfakes this year. Do these new efforts give you any more confidence for working towards a viable solution? No, but it's better than no progress. Like I, I, I mean, I'm I'm very happy to see the the movement and to see you know, major companies getting involved, it doesn't mean my confidence level has changed that we're actually going to have a solution in a near term. But again, it's, it is certainly better than not having this information to report on. All right. So in our last topic here in a long list of rapid fire this week, uh, Google has introduced Gemini Business, a new plan for companies that lets them use its Gemini models. And it's also... Another name change, another rebranding has renamed Duet AI for Google Workspace to Gemini for Google Workspace. So this basically means Gemini, what we've been talking about over the last couple episodes, this is now going to be built into all of Google's Workspace apps. And it means that more businesses will be able to access Gemini through this new plan. So the plan gives you access to Gemini for workspace for as low as 20 bucks per user per month if you make an annual commitment. And companies can also buy Gemini Enterprise, which helpfully is replacing Duet AI for workspace enterprise. Are you confused yet? For 30 bucks per month with an annual commitment. So Gemini Enterprise has the same capabilities as Gemini Business, but you can have more usage uh, before you hit usage limits. It also has a few more capabilities related to AI power meetings, including a bunch of translation features, and soon it will help you take meeting notes. So, Bull, I don't think we have any more time to go into all of Google's naming conventions here, but seems like long story short, we're getting kind of almost like a chat GPT plus plan here for Gemini. I think, and I, I have Duet AI for Google Workspace. I think yes. that means I have Gemini <laughs> business now, or maybe I have Gemini for Google Workspace. I honestly don't know. Um, 
I will report back to you all when I figure out what we actually have and if it does what it's uh, supposed to do. Yeah, I will simply say that at the very <laughs> least it is worth fighting through the jargon and terminology because at least for a personal Gemini advanced account, which is a paid account, Gemini is pretty breathtaking in my opinion. So at least on a positive note, it's worth fighting through all, figuring out all this stuff so you can actually use some really cool AI technology. Agreed. All right, Paul, thank you so much for breaking everything down for us this week. Uh, I want to remind our audience, if you haven't already, to subscribe to our newsletter. It's called This Week in AI. You can find it at marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter. We break down all the topics we just discussed, even more in depth, and also include all the other topics we didn't get to and don't have time for in a single podcast episode. And trust me, every week, there are tons of them. It's simply the quickest way, in addition to this podcast, to stay up to date on artificial intelligence. So go check that out. Paul, thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week. Uh, and again, uh, AIWriterSummit.com as well. Don't forget that. It is next Wednesday, March 6th. If you're a writer, editor, or content marketer, please join us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to The AI Show. Visit marketingaiinstitute.com to continue your AI learning journey and join more than 60,000 professionals and business leaders who have subscribed to the weekly newsletter, downloaded the AI blueprints, attended virtual and in-person events, taken our online AI courses, and engaged in the Slack community. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.